Recode's award-winning series, Land of the Giants, is back. In the past, the show has explored the history and impact of big tech companies like Amazon, Netflix, and Google. This season, it's Apple. And of course, you can't tell the story of Apple without talking about the iPhone. So here's a bit of the first episode with our friend, Peter Kafka. January 2007. The world's biggest tech companies were off to a massive convention in Las Vegas to schmooze and drink and show off stuff they wanted to sell. But one giant company was not at the Consumer Electronics Show. Apple. Apple's absence at CES wasn't unusual. What was unusual was that Steve Jobs, Apple's CEO, was holding his own show at the same time, 400 miles away. He set an unspecified special event at one of the convention centers in San Francisco. Walt Mossberg was the Wall Street Journal's tech reviewer, and he had more influence on tech than any other journalist. If you had a new computer or gadget or software you wanted the world to know about, you brought it to Mossberg first, and you prayed he liked it. Steve Jobs had cultivated a relationship with Mossberg for years. He called him up routinely, off the record, to shoot the shit. Now Jobs wanted Mossberg at his event. And like others, I was invited and I said to Katie Cotton, his head PR woman, who called to invite me, what's it about? And she said, I can't tell you, but it's big. Mossberg said no. He was going to CES instead. Then he got another call. This time, it was Jobs on the line. And he says to me, be there. I said, I don't have to be there. I, I mean, I have all these other appointments. There are other companies other than Apple and, you know, and he said, I understand that, but you will kill yourself if you're not at this. And I said, well, what is the product? He said, I can't tell you. But he said, I'm telling you, I'm giving you my personal word that it's the most important product since the Mac and that you will be extremely unhappy with yourself if you don't come. That was a hard sell from one of the world's best salesmen. And it worked. Mossberg got on a plane to go see the Steve Jobs show. Every once in a while, a revolutionary product comes along that changes everything. Jobs was on stage in his standard uniform, jeans, New Balance, black turtleneck. He told the crowd he'd be introducing three revolutionary new products. The first one is a widescreen iPod with touch controls. The second is a revolutionary mobile phone. And the third is a breakthrough internet communications device. People who paid attention to Apple knew that Apple was going to make a phone someday. So there were huge expectations it would be groundbreaking. But the phone itself, that was a total mystery. An iPod, a phone, and an internet communicator. An iPod, a phone. The way that he started kind of teasing you into thinking it might be multiple devices. Are you getting it? This is one device. And we are calling it iPhone. 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 I thought it would change phones forever, 
That was incredible. I, I thought it was going to be an enormous hit. And it was. The iPhone changed phones forever. But it also changed personal computing. It changed business. It changed Apple. And it changed us. Welcome to Land of the Giants, the Apple Revolution. I'm Peter Kafka. I cover technology for Vox and Recode. We spent a lot of time in previous seasons talking about powerful tech companies, Google, Amazon, and Netflix. But this is the first time we're talking about a powerful tech company that makes tech products for a living. Products you touch, products you hold in your hand or wear on your body. Apple started out as an innovative but niche personal computer company. Now it's the world's most important consumer electronics company. Even if you don't use its products, you live in a world Apple has completely reshaped. It's created entirely new industries, wiped out giant competitors, and it's changed the way all of us live. And all of that's because of a single product, the iPhone. Okay, quick survey. What kind of phone do you have? If you're in America and you're listening to this podcast, you've got an iPhone. What's that? You got something else? You got an Android? Okay, it's possible. In truth, and because my editors want me to spell this out, iPhones only account for about half the smartphone market in the U.S. But even so, that still means you're using a phone that looks and behaves just like an iPhone. Because after the iPhone came out, there was no going back. It became the template. Next question. Do you remember what phone you had before you got an iPhone? And more important, do you remember what life was like before the iPhone? You probably don't. It was a while ago and a lot has changed. So we asked some tech journalists, The Verge's Neil I. Patel and The Wall Street Journal's Joanna Stern, to help us remember the before times. In late 2006, you would buy a phone based almost entirely upon what it looked like. Because all it could really do was make phone calls. You either used a regular cell phone, which was a flip phone type thing, which you would really just use to make calls and you could do like light texting on it. But the thing most people cared about was what does it look like? And that's where you got a phone like the Motorola Razr. Hello, Moto. Everyone wanted the Razr phone. And that was around that time, and that was like a status symbol. And then you had like another class of devices, which are really the BlackBerry or Pocket PC, which was like, get, I can't curse on this podcast, right? Yeah, yeah, go for it. Yeah, it was get shit done phones. Connect to everything you love in life with BlackBerry. Type on this keyboard, send email. You could also text. You could also do phone calls. So phones were something you used to make phone calls, maybe text people. If you worked on Wall Street or you wanted to seem important, maybe you used it for email, too. And if you wanted to take decent digital photos or listen to music, then you needed a few other devices. I think about the stack of things I carried around my pockets in 2006. You had your wallet, your keys, you had your cell phone, and then you almost always also had an iPod. And the iPod was a far superior device to any cell phone. People preferred using them to their phones. And it just seemed obvious, I think, to everyone at every layer, whether you were a titan of industry or whether you were just a person carrying on two devices, that these two things should be the same thing. Steve Jobs was one of the people that realized that the iPod and the phone were going to merge. So Apple needed to be the one that figured out how to merge them before someone else did. One big problem for Apple, it had never made a phone before. It had been making computers since 1976 and iPods for the last few years, but cell phones were a whole different beast. But one big advantage for Apple, it had never made a phone before. 
which means it didn't have ideas set in stone about what phones should be. The company wasn't trying to make small updates to existing phones that sucked, and it wasn't trying to jam its own PC software into phones. Former Apple executive Tony Fidel helped build the iPod and then the iPhone. Why is it Apple that built the iPhone, not Microsoft, not Sony, not, not BlackBerry for that matter? These large companies try to take their properties like Windows. They all try to take their property that they know and move their customers and this big operating system down to this smaller device and say, it's like that, but in your pocket. You have all the capabilities, but it's in your pocket. And they want to keep all the same anachronisms. And do you use a stylus instead of a mouse now, instead of using your finger? So you think this is so, an ideological thing, not a capability thing? That's what I've seen as the fundamental failure with most of these companies who try to get into new spaces, is they try to use old techniques to get into new spaces where they can't do that. They have to rethink it from the bottom up. So Apple knew it wanted to build a phone and that it would be starting from scratch. It rounds up a team to build something new. And Apple, which is famously secretive at all times, got even more clamped down this time around. Nitin Ganatra was on the original iPhone engineering team, and part of his job was to recruit other Apple employees under the project. I would go into somebody's office, somebody who we identified as, we should really have this person on, on the team, and I would walk in and say, hey, I can't tell you what we're working on. I can't mention anything about, you know, the, the product itself. I can't give you any details about what you're going to do. All I can say is that you're going to work your ass off. Do you want to come and do it? You know, and most of the time the answer was yes. Mark Hamblin worked on the original iPhone product team focused on the touchscreen. They put all of us working on the, on the touchscreen stuff in, in one office area, which was quite new. And I got a nice window office overlooking the interior courtyard of the Infinite Loop campus. And then, uh, like three days later, they come in and they frost my windows. Um, and so <laughs> my nice view out in the courtyard was then blocked, and so no one could see into my office. The extra dose of secrecy was a sign that the iPhone was a very big deal to Apple. Another sign, Steve Jobs was very, very hands-on. Francisco Tomalski was hired to work on the iPhone software, but not right away. When I first joined, it happened to be that, you know, Steve was on vacation, and he needs to, like, personally prove everyone, like, the day they start. And so they were just like, well, Steve's on vacation, so you're on vacation. <laughs> and once Jobs signed off on you, the scope and ambition of the project became pretty clear. There was a lot of discussion about, you know, this is the most important product that Apple is going to ship. It was on his mind that this was a very important product to, to get right. And so the pressure was ratcheted up because of that. Jobs had been a famously harsh critic of his employees' work in his early days. And 30 years after starting Apple, he remained intense. Francisco Tomalski remembers that Steve Jobs would check in on the team's progress every couple weeks. I guess it was quickly discovered that the interactions were fairly demoralizing for the engineers. And so they instituted kind of like a protection layer where there was one person who was designated to go take the quote-unquote feedback and abuse or whatever, and then like massage that into like, well, Steve didn't like this, and he thinks you should do this differently. The iPhone became a two-year sprint to build something Apple had never made and that no one else had either. A sprint that ended with Steve Jobs on stage promising three devices. A widescreen iPod with touch controls, a revolutionary mobile phone, and a breakthrough internet communications device. For the team that built it, 
that onstage demo was more stressful than any other moment. I mean, it was just, I, I, I mean, I've never been so nervous. You know, not even on my wedding day was I, was I as nervous as that. If Safari crashes, <laughs> we're in deep shit sort of thing. A buddy had a, <laughs> uh, had a flask that he was passing around. It seems like it would be a pleasant memory, but it's not. It's a high anxiety memory. Everyone else who gathered to watch the unveiling, they had a different experience. The iPhone blew them away. Media treated it like a major international news event. Got a front page write-up in the New York Times. And it really was amazing. People had imagined combining a music player with a phone for years, but this was so much more. A computer merged with a phone, a music player, and a camera. And a display you could manipulate with your fingers a display that lets you call up just about anything on the internet. A triumph. To catch more of this episode, check out Land of the Giants wherever you get your podcasts. And keep an eye out for new episodes every week. Thank you for listening to Rico Daily. My name is Adam Clark Estes. This episode was produced by Alan Rodriguez Espinosa and engineered by Paul Robert Mouncey. Let us know what you want to learn more about. Email us at ricodaily at rico.net. to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.